Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you again today and to continue our study in the book of Philippians. And just before we get rolling into our service, we want to ask the Lord to, to bless our time together. And, and as, as we're doing this, you could be, begin making your way to Philippians 4. We're going to be in verses 10 to 20, some of the most quoted uh, verses, maybe in the entire book, at least Philippians 4, 13, uh, which we know so well, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So while you're finding your way uh, to your place in scripture, let's ask God to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day of worship you've given to us. I pray that wherever we may be gathered, that Jesus is high and lifted up. As we come to this time of uh, presenting and diving into your word, I pray, God, you will open up our hearts to learn, to grow, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So, God, uh, let us learn more about Jesus and how we can apply these words to our hearts specifically. Uh, And I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was serving as a youth pastor in northwest Indiana. And there was a season of ministry where I really wanted to tackle a topic of contentment. Now, it was a very familiar topic for the students that I was presenting to, but just in some of the conversations that I was having, I felt like, you know what, maybe we need to spend a little bit of time talking about this. So one of the sermons that I I titled during that series was called Fighting FOMO. Now, for those who may not know, FOMO means the fear of missing out. Now, for a group of students that I was presenting to, we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about the fear of missing out on the latest social media app that was getting ready to be launched, or fear of missing out on the next big trend that was getting ready to break into our culture, or fear of missing out on not having the latest generation iPhone, or not having the specific friend group that you desired to have, or weren't completely satisfied with the group of friends you had currently. And so we we talked about a lot of different things. And you know, there were a lot of other things that these students could have chosen to fill in the blank with whatever they were scared to miss out on. I mean, you think about it, there's thousands of uh, options to fill that blank in with. And so what that really revealed, though, was that it really revealed that in their heart, there was this kind of unsettledness, this unsatisfaction in their heart that they wanted more than what they had currently been blessed with. And so they, they just they weren't content in, in, in simple words. And that's kind of really what the main point of that sermon was. And and it was really kind of a cool experience because after that, I was able to have some great conversations with students, just kind of some one-on-one, and really begin, they begin to confess to me, hey, Pastor Isaiah, this is kind of what I've been discontent with. It's not been focused on Jesus, it's been focused on other things. That's really what breeds discontentment, is when we are focused on anything else other than Christ, it, it doesn't last for very long, and it just creates this unsatisfaction in our heart. We had to you know, chase something else. And that was really, really fun to be a part of ministry in, in those students' lives. But you know, discontentment is not just a student issue. It's not just a teenager issue. It's a people issue, right? This is an Isaiah issue. And there have been plenty of times when I have desired something that I feel like will bring me joy and satisfaction. And as a result, I'll just spend all my energy, all my focus, all my thought on just thinking about this thing or things that are going to bring me joy and satisfaction. The more I become fixated on this, the more discontent uh, it, it breeds in my heart. So discontentment, it's a very 
real struggle for me. Namely, when I think about the Jeep Sport Wrangler that I really, really want like right now. Like that's kind of a, a dominant thought in my mind. I have to really submit that to Christ. But you know, it's not always possessions that cause discontentment. Sometimes it's relationships. You know, the, the relationship that we're in, it's not living up to the expectations we had envisioned for it. And it creates a sense of discontentment in our hearts. We're not satisfied or we want more than what we currently have. You know, discontentment can happen in our jobs. We daydream about what it would look like to work for a different organization. What would it look like for me to have the big promotion, the big pay raise, the, 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 the nameplate on the door that just boasts of my title? We think about those things. Or maybe we daydream about what would it look like to, to be in a different field altogether and when we, th- when we think about those things, and, and those things don't come to pass, it creates discontentment in our heart. And, and just like the students that I was teaching several years ago, there are many things that we can fill in the blanks of what we think is going to bring us joy and satisfaction. And so as we dive into our text today, we're also going to discover that there was at least a time in Paul's life where he was wrestling with this battle of discontentment. But by God's grace, he was able to learn the secret of being content, and he walked joyfully in it. See, Paul was so passionate about contentment, and to have others enjoy contentment, it was a theme that he wrote about more than once in Scripture. You know, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 talks about contentment. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about contentment. Paul understood that contentment has nothing to do with the things that we may or may not have, but rather it's our posture before the Lord and what we think about him in the moments we don't have the things we think are going to bring us satisfaction. Paul understood this. So in other words, he's asking, is Christ's presence enough to bring us joy and satisfaction, or or do we need to fill in the blank with something else? That's kind of the question on the table. So notice what Paul says about this, this idea of contentment in the text. This isn't the the exclusive thrust of the text. Paul also brings out this idea of generosity, which we'll talk about in a moment. But to start our time together, let's look at what Paul says about this principle of contentment. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And as we have learned over the course of our time studying Philippians, we understand and we learn that Paul had a great relationship with the Philippian people. They had a big heart for Paul. Paul had a big heart for them. So when Epaphroditus comes to Paul bearing gifts given by the Philippian church, Paul was super excited. He was very grateful and joyful for this. And this is why at the beginning of our text, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord's greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, I think there are a few reasons why Paul was so encouraged by the giving of these gifts. First of all, as we've already said, there was a tight-knit relationship between this church and with Paul. So so receiving a gift from a very dear friend, it means just a little bit more. So Paul was just excited because of who the giver was. It'd be like you and I receiving a gift from from grandma back home. Man, we're just excited that she was thinking about us, that she loves us, that there's this this tight-knit relationship between uh, her and ourselves. This this would have brought Paul great excitement. The second reason I think Paul would have been excited about this is because, remember, Paul is in the Roman prison system. So to have this this gift means that he has a next meal available to him, warm clothes to wear. So he would have been completely dependent upon outside funds and resources to provide those things for him in prison. So this was a big deal to him because now he could eat, now he had warm clothes to wear. But you know, I don't think those two reasons are what brought Paul the most joy and excitement. I think what brought Paul the most joy was that this act of generosity was a reflection or an indicator of the Philippian church's spiritual health and maturity. It showed that they were growing in Christ. They were committed to Christ. They wanted to invest in the kingdom of God. It showed Paul that this group of people loves the Lord. They love his work. They love his ministry. They want to see the gospel proclaimed. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the upcoming verses. But Paul was excited about this. Now, again, on this idea of spiritual maturity, we know that this was a big deal to Paul. He wrote about this in other places in Scripture, specifically regarding the Philippian church, the the church region of Macedonia. He was talking about this specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Notice what Paul writes to, to this church in 2 Corinthians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church in this passage, there are two paradoxes occurring. So, so you have joy and hardship, and you have wealth and poverty. So how can this be? How can you have both? Well, I think the answer is true for, for most of the Macedonian churches, and to the Philippian church specifically. The grace of God had gripped their heart. And now grace was overflowing from their heart towards Paul and towards the relief of the saints. See, they had experienced the good treasures of God in their heart, and now they wanted to share that and extend that to others. So Paul was way more excited to see their generosity because it reflected or indicated spiritual health on their part. He was way more excited about that than receiving his next meal. It it reflected Christian maturity. 
And although Paul is excited about this gift and he's rejoicing greatly in the Lord, it could have given the wrong impression to the Philippian church. And he recognizes this right away. It could have given the wrong impression because he says, you know what? Uh, It could have communicated, it's about time you sent me a gift. I was beginning to wonder if you even blessed me at all or liked me at all. I just, I was kind of confused whether our friendship was still solid or not. So Paul recognizes. So so right away he begins to uh, address this because this couldn't be further from, from Paul's strands of thought. Because he goes on to say, you were indeed concerned, well, weren't concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. See, their love for Paul was true and it was pure, and, and Paul knew that. So to make sure they know that, he says, you know what, I, I know you loved me. I know we were still friends. I, I know you wanted to bless me. You just didn't have an opportunity until now. So Paul wanted to make it clear that this gift that this people gave him, that's not what brought him contentment. It brought him great joy, but it wasn't the source of his contentment. I I think Paul is very clear that this rested in someone far greater than any gift they could have ever given. So it was a great source of joy, but not his source of contentment. So Paul continues to say in his clarification, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, it is in this portion of the text that Paul introduces the reader, the Philippian church to us, to this principle of contentment, but with a slight twist. See, contentment would have been a principle that the first century would have been familiar with, but not from a Christian perspective. See, contentment was common in Stoic philosophy and meant that one was self-sufficient or self-reliant on one's abilities or oneself, or they were completely indifferent to the circumstances one may have been in. See, the Stoic line of the day was, man should be sufficient unto himself for all things, and be able by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstances. That was the stoic position of contentment. Their their position of contentment suppresses emotions and feelings as if they have no bearing on a human whatsoever. But that's not what Paul is talking about. So, So what would Paul be talking about then? Well, I really love one pastor's definition of contentment, and I really feel like it aligns with Paul's position quite well. Listen to this definition of contentment. Contentment is a state of Christ-empowered gladness or joy in the midst of God-ordained circumstances that cannot be changed at the time. Let me me read that again. Contentment is a state of Christ-empowered gladness or joy in the midst of God-ordained circumstances that cannot be changed at the time. In other words, it isn't self-sufficiency or independence that allows men and women to experience contentment. Rather, it is complete dependency upon Christ and his power that produces contentment in Christ's followers' heart. And so Paul is going to take the next couple of verses to kind of expound on that thought. He says, continuing, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. Essentially, Paul is saying that he has lived life in such a way that he has learned to be content, to be completely reliant on the supremacy and power of Christ. See, Paul is proudly taking on the sufferings of Christ. That's why he says, I know how to be brought low. And he has enjoyed the fruit of faithful ministry to Christ. That's why he says, I know how to abound. But notice, however, that Paul says, that he has learned 
to be content. He, he learned it. This, this didn't come naturally to him. Paul wasn't born content. He had to spend intentional time growing and learning this principle. He actually says it for a second time in verse 12. He says that not only that this is, this is not something that I learned, but this is actually a secret that I learned. That's what he says in verse number 12. You know, I love the redemptive language that Paul uses in that passage, the word secret. See, in the first century, the word secret was tied to false religions of the day where one would be initiated into the mysteries of pagan cults. Like that's what the word secret meant. But Paul, however, redeems that word, and he says he's been initiating into knowing the secret of contentment. Now, the great part about that was it wasn't exclusive to Paul or just to a select group of followers. It's the secret in which all Christ's followers can participate in. So that means Isaiah can know the secret of contentment. You watching at home or wherever you may be can learn the the secret of being content. How, how do we know this? How do we know that we can learn or know the secret? It's because Paul reveals it to us in the text. He, he kind of gives this big reveal where we're able to learn the secret. He says in verse number 13, I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. This is the big reveal. Right? This is the secret. The, the veil is uncovered. You see what's behind the curtain, and this is the answer. This is the secret. It is Christ's strength working through his People. This is what Paul says is a secret. So, so contentment is not white-knuckled willpower. It's not the, uh, uh, the ability to depend on yourself or your talents or abilities. Contentment is only found in the power of Christ. So I'm, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have heard Philippians 4.13 before, or we've probably quoted it. We have, have it written on a coffee mug or a t-shirt. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great, great verse. It's a, it's a verse that's been used as a source of inspiration and motivation for many. And if you're my age, you remember Tim Tebow wearing it on his eye black and playing at the University of Florida or, or in the NFL somewhere. That was, that was kind of his, his trademark other than the, the Tebow bow, bowing on a knee. Like, we remember that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it's certainly an encouraging verse. It's a powerful verse. However, Paul shares this verse when he's talking about learning to be content. See, Paul's not saying, I have all power to do all things. This is a reference to him being content in whatever state he finds himself in, leaning back into verse 11. It's not speaking of accomplishing great feats for the kingdom. It's about learning contentment. It's not about making it through a very difficult season of life. It's about learning contentment. Contentment. Now, that verse can apply to those things, certainly, but it's not what it means in the context of the passage. It's about the power of Christ and how he supplies our contentment. I can get through anything because of the power of Christ. I can accomplish contentment in my life because of Jesus and his power working through me. So it takes the power of Christ to learn to be content. And because of that, there are probably a couple of things that you and I should know about contentment. The first thing I think we need to know is contentment, learning contentment, it's not easy. In fact, learning contentment can be very, very difficult. See, Paul had to endure some very challenging obstacles in his quest to learn contentment. If you just want a a brief glimpse into some of the 
the trials and challenges that Paul had to go through, just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. It kind of gives a little snapshot of what Paul went through in his quest to learn contentment. And yet it was in those difficulties where Paul leaned on the power of Christ, and from that it produced contentment. So, so learning contentment, it isn't easy. It can be actually quite difficult. Second thing I think we need to know about contentment is learning contentment takes time. This isn't an overnight transformation that happens. It's a slow, methodical approach, and over time, contentment is produced in our life. It's, it's consistently submitting ourselves uh, to the power of Christ in order that we might be satisfied in him. Learning contentment takes time. Now, the time thing, that can be difficult for us in the 21st century, right? Because we live in an instant gratification world. I mean, think about it. We have fast food. You can get your food in just a matter of seconds. We have high-speed internet. We have two-day shipping. We have instant streaming. Anything that we could possibly want is at our fingertips in just a few clicks, in a few seconds. Man, we, we have it. Learning contentment is quite the opposite. It's it's time-consuming. It's a grind. It takes persistence. It, it, takes, it takes a little bit of time and effort on our part. So as I said, contentment is a big thrust of the text today, but it's not the only, it's not the only message that Paul is communicating. He's also, he, he's also interacting with this idea of generosity. Right? He, he wants to, to commend them for how gracious they have been because he was so grateful that this church came alongside of him and supported him in the ministry. So yes, Paul's very content in his, his, his position in Christ and how Christ has been with him through all things. But he's also very grateful for the gifts that had, had been given to him by this church. And he, he's going to expound on that through the remainder of our text. So starting in verse number 14 through 16, let's see what Paul says to this group of people. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It's almost like you can hear Paul's gratitude coming through in the text. He was touched and encouraged that this church family would invest so much in the kingdom of God. And, to, and, they, and they were willing to participate in Paul's sufferings. There's actually several times throughout the letter that Paul acknowledges this in one way or another. It's so encouraging for Paul to know that even while in prison, away from his church family, they're willing to pray for him. They're willing to, to invest into the kingdom of God with their finances. And again, as Paul said, this is an indicator to their spiritual health. And, and Paul was so encouraged by that. Now, I know I've mentioned that a couple different times that that giving or generosity is an indicator of spiritual health. Not that it's the marker or the barometer, but it's an indicator where we can measure our spiritual health. So I guess the question on the table is, how, how is giving an indicator of spiritual maturity and health? Well, I think we can establish this by what we see and what we learn in Scripture. So let me just point out a couple of different ways where I think Scripture links generosity and spiritual health together. So I think the first place we can start is in the book of Luke chapter 19 where we learn about this character named Zacchaeus. So when Zacchaeus believed in Jesus for salvation, it changed his, his entire attitude towards money. He believed in Jesus for, for his Lord as his Lord and Savior, and it completely changed his heart for money. Completely changed it. 
See, prior to his conversion, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which means he was, he was essentially a con artist. He would take a few bucks off the top uh, of the tax, uh, tax dollars, and he'd throw it into his wallet, then he would give the, the actual amount due back to Rome. So he was a, a not a well-liked guy. He was actually a hated guy, probably. And so this is where his heart was towards money. I'm going to scam the people to, to make a profit for myself, and I'm going to give what's Rome back, back, back to Rome. However, when he believed in Christ as Lord and Savior, it completely changed his heart. Notice what Zacchaeus says in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, after his conversion. He says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. See, money was no longer the master of Zacchaeus. Now it was Jesus his attitude on money completely changed to the point that impacted his generosity. He was willing to, to pay back anything that he had stolen. And not only that, he was going to go above and beyond by saying, I'm going to do four times that amount. I feel so terrible for how I've defrauded the people of their money. And I want to, I want to pay restitution. I want to make this right. He was no longer worshiping money. He was now worshiping Christ. So the first thing we see, generosity is an indicator of a regenerate heart. Again, it's not the barometer, it's not the indicator, but an indicator where we see this life change, this regenerate heart, this spiritual maturity. So that's, I think that's one way we see generosity and, and spiritual health linked together. I think another way, a second way we see these two things linked together is noted in the text that we read earlier today. See, Paul calls this church partners in the gospel. You are partners with me in the gospel. They have entered into a fellowship with Paul, so the, the gospel can be proclaimed in advance in places that they may never be able to visit. So they had a desire to see the kingdom of God built in advance, and they wanted to invest in that. So to some level, the Philippian church understood that not all can go, not all can, can go, but all can invest. So they understood some people are the goers and some people are the senders. Either way, they have come into this fellowship with Paul to build the kingdom of God. They were so passionate about that, and they wanted to go hand in hand with Paul. Thus, generosity is an indicator that one is passionate about building the kingdom of God, and that is an indicator of spiritual health. So, so while Paul has just been explaining, I have everything I need in Christ. My contentment is found in Christ. My strength is found in Christ. He says, it was, it was so kind of you to give anyway. I'm so encouraged that you still gave because it shows me you are passionate about the gospel being advanced. He was incredibly grateful for their generosity and sacrifice, not only for now as he's writing Philippians, but for times past when they helped and supported him as well. I think there's one more way we see generosity and spiritual health linked together. and It's found in the conclusion of the letter. Notice what Paul says in verses 17 to 20. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as Paul is making some concluding thoughts to his letter. Again, he rehearses his gratitude for the gifts that this church has provided him. Yet he's not so much concerned how he has benefited himself, 
but actually how it has benefited the, the people giving it. It has benefited them. So he's using investment type language here. Essentially what Paul is saying, it says, you have made an investment into the kingdom, and when you invest in the kingdom of God, there's always going to be an ROI. There's going to be a return on investment. Now, Paul is not teaching when you give financially, you receive financially. That's not what Paul's teaching. He's teaching when you invest in the kingdom of God, there's always an eternal inve- a return on that investment. It's a heavenly reward. It's, it's thinking about eternity. It's living life, investing, giving in light of eternity. And he says, you are setting up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You are making eternal contributions. So this type of language actually has been common throughout the letter. So Paul says in verse number 19, what we just read, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, pointing to the eternality of your investment, pointing to Christ. He says in verse number, or chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In verse number 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. So again, Paul is saying, when you give to the kingdom of God, you're making a heavenly investment. You are setting up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That has eternal impacts, eternal investments. So generosity indicates that we have a kingdom mindset, that we are, we are uh, doing this as an act of worship, which is elevating, exalting the name of Christ, because we want to see his name proclaimed, his gospel proclaimed in the earth. And, and you know what else generosity does in our heart? Generosity also comes from a place of contentment, right? The reason Paul was not dependent upon the gifts he was receiving is because he was content in Christ. He was completely content in him. And the reason the Philippian church could give so radically and so sacrificially is because they were content in Christ. Money was not their master. Jesus was. Christ was the foundation of both their giving and of their contentment. So so what does this mean for us? How, How do we apply what Paul is writing to the Philippian church? How do we apply that to our life, to our situations that we're currently in right now? Well, let me just share a few principles of application to conclude uh, our time together. Here's the first principle. We must always be sure that Jesus is the foundation of our contentment and nothing else. Let me say that again. We must always be sure that Jesus is the foundation of our contentment and nothing else. See, the reason we grow discontent is because we place value in earthly treasures rather than in the treasure of Christ. And we chase the things of the world looking for satisfaction and pleasure. It may work, but, but it's only going to work for a short amount of time. It, it can't last forever. It's not eternal. Only Christ can be the foundation of our contentment. It's like mowing the grass. It's like mowing the grass. It looks awesome on Saturday. You're going to mow the yard on Saturday. You got the, the straight lines, beautiful green grass, and you're, you're sweating, and you're just so proud of the work you've accomplished. But you know what happens next Saturday? You have to do it all over again. And this time you may have some clover and the crabgrass starting to come up and you got weeds you got to pull. Like that's what chasing earthly treasures is like. It's going to work, but it's going to be so short-lived. And then you have to fill it with something else. The chase is always on when we are trying to find contentment in earthly things. You always have to keep that up. Never satisfies long-term. We have to build on the foundation of Christ for our contentment. That's principle number one. Let me share the second one. Second one is this, spend time in scripture and prayer to combat a discontent heart. 
Spend time in scripture and prayer to combat a discontent heart. See, discontentment is going to rise up in your heart and my heart at some point in our life, if, if not so even right now. And, and if I'm being perfectly honest, this is something that's kind of rearing its ugly head up in my life more than I would even care to admit. But you know, it's in those moments that I must pray and read through Scripture to reorient my heart to look to Christ. You know, I must think of passages like Philippians 4.11 that we read moments ago that I've learned in whatever situation I am, any circumstance, I've learned to be content. Or, or maybe I need to memorize passages like Hebrews 13.5, which says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. This sounds a lot like Philippians 4.13, doesn't it? Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now the writer of Hebrews says he never leaves you or or forsakes you. And so our minds, our hearts are always being reoriented to who Jesus is and his power working through us. I must think about the fact that he is with me. And, And I do this by diving into scripture and by praying, by talking to him. Therefore, I can be content with what I have because of Christ working in me. Let's turn to scripture and prayer to reorient our hearts. And here's the third and final one. We must strive, we must always strive to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now, I know we didn't read this passage that Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, but Paul is echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. This is a reference to our generosity. When we give, we must know we're making kingdom investments. We're trying to build the kingdom of God on earth, to to give opportunity to the gospel to be preached and souls to be won to Christ. And this is why Paul was so proud of the Philippian church. Not just that they gave, but they made kingdom investments. And so brothers and sisters, I pray that we, when we, when we take time to give, we feel led to give, that we do so with heaven in mind, knowing that we are completely content in Christ and we want to see the gospel message of him be spread among the earth. So we need to let Jesus be the foundation of our contentment. We must dive into scripture and pray to combat our hearts from discontentment. And then we need to strive to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we walk in this joyfully. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. God, how it impacts us, how it opens our heart, God, to be more and more like Christ. So God, I pray it is through the power of Christ only that fuels our contentment. May we look to him the moments that we are discontent. And God, may you be glorified in all that we do. May we walk joyfully in generosity and contentment today. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.